Let me get my screen up here. And we've done four of these. This is our fourth lesson into this mini-series, Protected. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. If you have your Bibles, you can join us there. We also have Bibles back on the bookshelf in the back. If you want to use one of those, you can, or you can take it home and keep it. That's for your benefit. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, the Gospel of Luke, and verses 4 to 7 this morning. As I told you, we've done four of these so far. I'll give you a little bit of a, a refresher for where we've been. Uh, number one week, we talked about being delivered, how God has delivered us from our sin and from the death. Number two, how God provides for us, how he is our provider. Last week, we talked about being nourished. And this week, we're going to talk about being protected by our God. I don't know how long we'll get to keep this lesson, this series going. We might transition as soon as next week to something related to Advent, or we might keep this going for a little while longer. Uh, the Spirit will determine that going forward. But here's our passage this week. In fact, before we get there, I, I usually do this. I'm going to open with an icebreaker this morning. I'm going to do the same thing by asking you a question, as I usually do. Are there any things you have in your home to protect your children, if you have children, from getting hurt or getting harmed? Um, we have little rubber coverings around little sharp corners in our house, little things to guard off our stairs from the baby possibly falling down the stairs. And, you know, there's guardrails on the road. There's guardrails on the interstate as you drive. There's things to help us stay safe. And I wondered, are there guardrails for adults? Are there things like that that are designed for adults for the same purpose we designed them for the children to keep us safe? Well, I came up with a list of things that I believe are guardrails, at least for me. And maybe they apply to all adults, and I'm just going to give you a list of things that I thought of. Number one, guardrail for adult, is indigestion, heartburn, and nausea. And the reason I believe they're guardrails is for us is because that's our body's message, our body's way of telling us, don't do that again. Don't eat that again. Don't eat like that again. This is my warning to you. That didn't go well. So change your patterns a little bit. Number two, belt holes. All right, now we all just came off Thanksgiving. Uh, no judging because my belt hole is different than it was last week, I think. But we all ate probably pretty well this past week. What belt holes can be a guardrail because they let us know it's time to start dieting and working out again. If you notice the belt hole has changed, maybe that's time we start changing things a little bit. Here's number three. Maybe you guys have seen this before. The are you still watching this screen? Has anyone noticed that when you're watching something online and this, the screen pops up saying, are you, are you still watching this? Like, you're four hours deep, buddy. Like, still? Still watching? Just making sure before we carry on with this thing. That is the message from somebody to tell you to get a life, okay? If you go past that screen and go, yeah, I want a couple more hours, that's a little guardrail in your life to let you know things might need to change. Here's number four is memories of past pain and past embarrassment. Again, that is, that is life's message to you to say, don't do that again. Remember the last time you did this, this did not go well. And past pain and past embarrassment help us. They're a guardrail for us. Here's number five, wives. Yeah, wives. <laughs> I guess it applies to husbands too, but wives specifically, as I'm married, my wife is often the one who makes sure that I don't enter church looking like a slob. She's the one that says, that tie doesn't match. Those pants don't go with that shirt. Maybe you need to rewash your teeth, rebrush your teeth. She doesn't say that. But wives are there as a guardrail for pastors and for husbands, things like that, so we look our best. Here's number six is back and knee soreness. Does anyone wake up with a little soreness in the morning? I'm in my 40s now. I'm starting to notice there's a little bit of pain when I wake up. Like, what am I doing in my sleep that I hurt in the morning? I'm just laying there. 
But that is life's message to let us know that we're getting old and we should lower our expectations for the day, okay? Just back her down a notch, okay? We're a little sore, a little, a little hurting in the morning. Here's number seven. Maybe you guys grew up with a show like I did, America's Funniest Home Videos. Oh, yes. Yeah. That show is a guardrail. Do you know why? Because these people tried something and it went horribly. Don't try that. They're making the mistake so we don't have to. America's Funniest Home Videos. I love watching that show. But I often go, why? Why? Why did you try that? And then I find myself sometimes trying those things. Here's number eight guardrail for adults are kids. Kids. Kids are little bullies. They are. They tell us the truth about everything. They are truth tellers. And sometimes kids can give you a message that no one else can give you. Is that true? My kids will come up sometimes and say to me the blunt truth that I need to hear. And I won't let you know what those are. But... <laughs> They are a guardrail for adults. Number nine, body odor. That is your body's way of telling you, take a shower, you stink. Body odor, sometimes that happens. And the last one is mirrors and photographs. I've noticed there's been a transition. I used to like seeing myself in the mirror, like seeing myself in photographs. Now I cringe a little bit going, man, is that what I look like? And that's just a way to humble you and say you're not all that. You're not all that, okay? Here's a photograph to let you know from this angle that you do not look good. And uh, just a way to keep us a little bit in check. Well, sometimes we need guardrails. Sometimes we need things to protect us in life. But the greatest protector of all time, and it's not even close, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that today, how he protects us in a very profound way. In fact, before we open this lesson, can we bow in prayer and ask the Lord that he would help us this morning? Father, we come to you now and we give this lesson to you, Father, knowing that this is your word. And I ask that you would take over and speak through me by your Holy Spirit, Father, so that we can understand what you mean about being our protector and that we can love what you said and we believe what you said, Father, and follow it with every fiber of our being because you love us. Um, we just give this lesson to you today and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at a, just a short passage today, verses 4 to 7. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Did it catch up there? There we go. Why, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. A nice, short, sweet, but very powerful lesson. This is actually my son's Haddon's favorite verse, isn't it, Haddon? Oh, nice. And I asked him why. I said, why, why this passage? Why is this your favorite one? He said, it helped me not be afraid anymore. Oh, nice. That's exactly what he said. And I believe if we understand where the Lord is taking us today, we'll have that same impact upon us today. Help us not be afraid anymore. Our outline today, maybe you grabbed a sheet as you walked in, is going to be number one, wrong fear. We'll look at a wrong fear. Number two, a right fear. And number three, as we'll end up, is no fear. Right, Wrong fear, right fear, and no fear is where we're going today. Let's start with wrong fear. Did you know there's a wrong fear? In fact, there's many wrong fears in this world. There's so many wrong fears that you might say it's an epidemic. Fear is on the rise today. We are scared of so many things. Sometimes we just don't want to get out of bed because there's so many scary things surrounding us, so many people coming at us, so many different 
things that we have to overcome, so many people that seemingly want to hurt us out there, that sometimes it's scary. This life that we live in is a scary place to be. And I've noticed that even as I grow up, as life gets a little scarier every year, there's just a lot more things that I'm aware of. And maybe that's what knowledge does. Maybe the more knowledge you get is the more scary things become because you understand exactly what's in this world. Well, I'm going to be very transparent with you today, okay? I'm going to share with you a couple phobias that I have. Is that okay? You got, I'm expecting you guys not to judge me, okay? Because I'm being transparent with you today. I'm going to let you know there's a couple things that, that your pastor is terrified of. Now, I don't know what your phobia would be, but if looking at that screen, can anyone guess what mine is? Wow. I heard like 10 different answers. Let's go one at a time. What, what's my fear based on that picture? There it is. Claustrophobia. Claustrophobia. I, uh, I am very claustrophobic, and I don't know where that started, but I do have a specific, specific example of, of this happening. When I was, uh, before I was a pastor, I was a young adult minister, which means I, I helped young men and uh, did Bible studies, things like that, for, for about a decade, for 12 years almost. And so we would do Bible studies with young men and little groups like that. And so we did that uh, with a, young, a group of young guys. And I remember one, one time, we typically just stayed at our home and did it at our home. One time we decided we were going to go out to a restaurant and, and just mix it up for the night. And keep the same format, but just do it out at a restaurant. Well, we went to a restaurant. And as typical, they said, how many people? We said, we have five. It was me and four other guys. And they put us in a booth. Okay, typically not a problem. And typically, I have no problem with booths. I don't struggle. I'm not that claustrophobic. But what happened is I got put on the inside of this booth next to a cement wall. Well, the four other guys in our group were very big guys, okay? Big, strong guys. And there were two on the other side of me, and then two guys sat right next to me, almost pinning me against the wall because it was me, big guy, and then even bigger guy right next to me. And it's almost like I didn't think that situation through, and I found myself in kind of a predicament. Because I started to feel very claustrophobic. I pinned against the wall there, and maybe this is even bringing sort of a panic attack for some of those who have this. But I remember thinking, I, I have to get out of this. I, I can't sit here this whole night and expect it to lead a Bible study. And I'm feeling, starting to feel very panicked. And I told the guys, hey guys, you gotta let me out. We gotta reverse this seating, I gotta sit on the end. And you know what happens as soon as young guys hear that something's bothering you? <laughs> what do they do? They bother you even more. They moved in closer. See how much you like that, Todd. And I said, guys, I'm not kidding. I have to get out of this right now. And the joke continued on for just a little bit longer. But eventually they did let me out and I was able to sit on the edge. I'm just claustrophobic. I also had to sit on a plane one time and it was the same situation. I hate the window seat. Anyone else hate the window seat? Put me in the aisle let me spread my legs out, but I was in the window seat, crunched against the window. Man, I hated that experience. I'm claustrophobic. I, again, I don't know where that started, um, but a lot of people have this phobia. Let me share one with you that probably almost nobody has. And it's a very weird phobia, and it started on one specific day, and now it's a very strange thing that I want to admit to you today. Mannequins. <laughs> what? You're scared of mannequins? Well, not, not usually. If I walk into a store, I'm not scared of mannequins. But one time I went to the store, and I had to pick up some items, and it was, it was dark. It wasn't pitch black, but it was dark, and I got out of my car to go into the store. And you guys ever have that sense that somebody's watching you? Yeah. You ever get that? Well, I had that sense. I got out of my car, closed my door, and I just had a sense that someone was watching me. I turned 
to the car next to me and I, I saw something I just didn't expect to see. It was a face staring directly at me, no shades like that one, just staring at me with their, with their mouth agape, like open. And it was a mannequin. Someone had placed a mannequin in their car, in the front seat, staring out the window. And I yelped. Ah! I did something like that in the moment. And I, I noticed I had my, my fists up. Even in the moment, I brought my fists up, ready to do some action if I had to. And from that moment on, I'm always a little leery of mannequins. Why do I bring that up? Because sometimes we're scared of things, aren't we? Sometimes we're scared of things that we're a little embarrassed to be scared of. Well, the scripture is going to help us today with a bunch of different fears that we battle. And this is how Jesus starts this passage in verse 4 of chapter 12. He says, I tell you, and notice the tenderheartedness, my friends. Notice he's not speaking down to us. Notice he's not ridiculing us. He's saying, I tell you, my friends, notice it, do not fear. I love that the Lord cares about our fears. I, lo I love that the Lord says to us, we don't need to be afraid. It is mentioned over several hundred times in Scripture, this phrase, do not fear. Do not fear. The Lord does not want us to be afraid. Now, we know what this passage says because we already read it, but, but when you read this phrase, do not fear, and then you know something is following that, what do you expect it to say? Do not fear those little petty fears that you have. Don't be scared of spiders and claustrophobia and mannequins. Um, because they can't hurt you, right? That's what you expect Jesus to say. Don't fear those things that can't hurt you. They're just shadows. They're just noises. It's kind of like when you go, when you're a parent and you go into your child's room and they say, I'm scared of something in the closet. And then you turn the light on and you reveal to them there's actually nothing in the closet except some clothes, maybe some hangers. And then you tell your child, you don't need to be afraid. There's nothing here that can hurt you. Well, it sounds like Jesus is going to say something like that to us. Don't be afraid of those petty things that aren't real. They can't hurt you. But notice the phrasing of this verse. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Is that odd to anyone else? Don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now, that's not what I expected to hear when I first read this. Don't fear those who can kill the body. What, Jesus, really? That's, that's the basis for every fear that we have. In fact, let me prove this to you. Fear, is, fear of death is the number one fear. And I know this because it's the common denominator for almost every fear out there, the fear of death. Now, I don't know where my claustrophobia started, and I don't know what the basis for that is. But with most fears, and I've done this to you, with you before, but no, most fears have the same common denominator. Let's just walk through them very quickly. Fear of heights. All right, you might fall to your death. Yes. Fear of snakes. You might get bit with venom, and it might lead to your death. Fear of flying. You might crash, and it might lead to your death. Fear of the dark. There might be some bad guy in there. Boogeyman, and it leads to your death. Fear of spiders, once again, you get bit, it leads to your death. Fear of germs, as you get sick, leads to your death. Fear of success, someone gets jealous, and leads to your death. And that's actually, that actually happens, I mean, watch Dateline. Um, stuff like that happens all the time. But you notice the same 
the, oh, excuse me, the same basis for every single fear is that it possibly could lead to our death. And now Jesus tells us to not be scared of those who can kill the body. Don't be scared of death, Jesus says. You don't need to be scared of those who can only kill your body. That sounds strange to say out loud. Here's four responses people typically have to death, okay, that I've noticed and I've even done some of these when thinking about death. And I remember as a young boy being scared of death. I remember thinking about death, thinking about my parents' death, thinking about my own death and being sort of concerned about that when I was a young boy. Well, here's the four natural responses we have to death. It's number one, we worry about it. We lose sleep over it. And maybe you have before. Maybe you've been so concerned with a health issue you were facing or just death in general that you lost sleep over it. You worried, you were anxious about death. That's a natural response to something so scary. Number two is we suppress it. We know it's there, we know it's coming, we know every single one of us, unless the Lord Jesus comes back, we'll die, we will all face death, but we suppress it. We sweep it under the rug, we act like it's not there, we don't talk about it at parties, and we all have a good time, even though it's there, even though we know it's coming. Number three is we pretend we're not concerned. We put on a tough guy face and go, ah, it doesn't bother me. Until you're face to face with death, then somehow it bothers you a little bit more. Or, thankfully, there's another solution. And this is the only solution out there. Is we conquer it. We defeat death with life. And thankfully, that's the Lord's response to us today. Is we don't worry, we don't suppress it, we don't pretend. We defeat death with life. He's going to be our protector today. Thankfully, the most famous verse in the Bible deals with this head on, doesn't it? John 3.16, let's say it out loud. We all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right in there. Right in John 3.16, it deals with the fear of death right head on. Those who believe in Jesus will not die. Now, it doesn't mean physically die. We've known many Christians who have passed from this life into the next, but it means the second death. It means the eternal death. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we will not perish. The most profound way of dying is dying on the other side. That will not happen to those who believe in Jesus. Therefore, not only do we not have to fear death, we have defeated death simply by believing in Jesus. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Every time I go to that verse, it astonishes me, the simplicity and the power of it. Hebrews 2 says it this way. If you read the book of Hebrews, he's talking to uh, Hebrew Christians and he's talking about death. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And I believe that's the whole world. The whole world is held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, sure, they could suppress it. They can act like it doesn't bother them. But in all reality, most of mankind is bothered by death. And to some degree, we should be. Because it's terrifying. It's a terrifying thing to experience loss or being taken away from someone that you care about. But here's where Jesus comes in and says, I understand you have this fear. I understand. And because you are my friends, because I love you, because I've died for you, I don't want you to fear this anymore. So do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Because we're all going to die, right? We said that before. We're all going to face death. If the people of this world, the things of this world, the only thing they can do is speed up that process to we die sooner, Jesus says that's not worthwhile 
of your fear. That's not worthy of your fear. There's something greater to fear, and we're going to talk about that here in a bit. But Jesus basically tells us in so many words, stop being afraid. I've told this to my kids before. You don't need to be afraid. Daddy is here. Mommy is here. The doors are locked. There's no bad guys. There's nothing to be afraid of. Cease your fearing and go to sleep. Now, again, that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? If someone tells you to not be afraid, it sounds great and you can agree with it, but it doesn't always work. Because as soon as you're alone, those thoughts creep back into your mind again and they attack you. What if? What if? What if? And Jesus says, stop. Stop being afraid. But he's going to change our perspective today. He's not just going to say stop. He's going to help us understand why we shouldn't be afraid. And basically tell us, listen, if all they can do is kill your body, that's no big deal. And Jesus, how can that possibly be? How could it possibly be that if someone who kills my body, that's not a big deal? Well, again, it's all perspective. Maybe one of the reasons I'm not scared of some things is because I have eight kids and I deal with scary things on a regular basis. Every day of my life, I'm scared. I really am. And every day of my life, it toughens me up a little bit because I'm so scared so often. Well, sometimes all we need is a perspective change, isn't it? To go, you're right. Once I understand how scary things could be, I'm not as scared as I once was. And Jesus is going to do that for us a little bit today to help change our perspective. I love this verse from Psalm 118, verse 6. Notice the language. It says, the Lord is with me. Is the Lord with you? I mean, we all sang the song, it is well with my soul. You could only sing that song and believe that song if the Lord is with you. The only way your soul is well is if Jesus is your Savior. The psalmist says, the Lord is with me, therefore I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And we have a guy standing on a mountain, leaning over that mountain. And it's sort of a picture for confidence. It's sort of a picture for not being afraid. Because the worst that can happen to me is nothing scary at all. Because the Lord is with me. And I notice that every time my children are scared, the only thing they really need is the presence of mommy and daddy. They like to sleep near us or sleep at our beds sometimes or have me sit with them. And as they fall asleep, they just need the presence of someone safe. The best way to overcome fears in our life is the presence of someone safe, isn't it? Thankfully, we have his presence any moment of the day. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? We've talked about wrong fear. Now we need to talk about right fear because this is also right here in this passage and we can't overlook it. See, Jesus was going to help change our perspective. He knows that there's a bunch of wrong fears out there and we're all plagued by these wrong fears. So in an effort to help us overcome these wrong fears, he's not just going to say, don't be afraid. He's going to shape our perspective to help us understand of what we should truly be afraid of so that we see those other fears as no big deal. That's what perspective is. You see it from a different angle and it changes. Now, I can only speak for men, but men like to feel tough. We do. We like to feel in charge. We like to feel like we're not going to be hurt. So we like to, we like to work out. You know, we like, sometimes like to fight. Um, if we're small guys, we like to get big trucks to let the entire world know out there, don't mess with me because my truck is big. I might be big. And, and it kind of goes back to that old strategy of suppressing. And maybe it's an insecurity for guys as maybe when we're not feeling so tough, we have to show ourselves to be tough. We have to act tough because we're actually not that tough. 
But I think that's a bad strategy. I don't think that's the strategy the Lord has for us at all, is just pretend to be tougher than we actually are. <laughs> In fact, wouldn't you say this, looking at this picture, there are some times that fear is a good thing? Yes. Isn't there sometimes that fear is a friend? Now, I don't know if this is an actual picture or not, but if it is, this guy is doing something very dumb. Uh, there's a tornado behind him, and he's deciding to mow his lawn. Bad idea. Fear at that moment should be your friend to say, I need to get somewhere inside where I can be safe. Sometimes fear is a good thing because it helps us stay alive. It helps us make a decision in a moment to do something that can help us. Sometimes fear can be a friend. Well, Jesus is going to give us a fear today. Did you know that? He's going to calm fears, and he's going to give us a fear at the same time. It's a unique strategy. It's not a strategy that I would use, but I'm thankful. You all are thankful that I'm not God. God has a different strategy for helping his children. So first he says, here's a wrong fear. And now he's going to say, here's a right fear. And notice what he's going to tell us. He says now to his same friends that he's writing to, now I warn you. Now I warn you whom to fear. I just told you what not to fear, those who can kill the body. Now I warn you whom to fear. There is someone to be afraid of. There is someone we should fear. Did you know that? In the same passage, in this short little passage, twice, Jesus tells us to fear not. And in the same passage, he tells us to fear. Two times don't fear, two times fear. And it all depends on the object of who we're fearing. Let's finish the verse here. He says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him. And he explains who him is. Who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, he just calmed our fears. Jesus, you just told us we don't need to be afraid of things that can only harm our body because you are with us. You've helped us conquer death. You love us. Your very presence is a safety to us. Why would you then replace that small fear with a bigger fear? I warn you whom to fear, fear him, who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And who's talking right now? The Lord Jesus Christ is talking. He's the one saying this to his group of listeners, his group of followers, saying you should fear the one who has the authority to cast souls into hell. Is that surprising to hear? That Jesus would take that strategy to scare us further than we already were? Maybe you've heard this phrase before, God-fearing. When someone says he's a God-fearing man or woman. You ever wondered what that means, God-fearing? Does that mean they believe in God? Does it mean they love God? Does it mean they serve God? Does it mean they go to church? Does it mean they're just an upstanding guy? What does the term God-fearing mean? Well, interestingly enough, the Word of God also has a lot to say about fearing God. Did you know that? A lot to say. Now, growing up, it was always told me that when we talk about the fear of God, all we're talking about is reverence and respect. And that's it. When we talk about fearing God, we don't need to fear him, like really fear him. We just replace the word fear with reverence and respect, and that's what the word of God means. And I would say that is right, but it doesn't go far enough. I would agree with that, but I think it goes further than that. And I'll help you understand that. That's what the word of God says today. And I, I believe if we understand this today, this is going to be the greatest gift of this sermon. If we understand the fear of God in a right and healthy way, it will be the perspective we need to never fear again. So this is the journey we're going to go on today a little bit. Solomon said this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
If you want wisdom, you start with the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom 101. 101 is the first college class you go to, the introductory course. Solomon is telling us, King Solomon, if you want to have wisdom, you start with fearing God. That right there is how you gain wisdom. Have the proper perspective of who God is, and everything else will fall into place. He also said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he said, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For that is the whole duty of man or of everyone. I didn't mean to cross that off. Fear God and keep his commandments. And there you get, sort of get a definition for what God-fearing means. Does it just mean to believe? Well, no, it means to obey. If you're a God-fearing person, you obey God because he's God. He's God. He is my maker. He is my creator. He is my sustainer of my life. He is the one that holds the keys to death and to life. Fear God and obey his commandments. That's what King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And that is a theme we find throughout scripture. If you fear God, you will obey God. Because it's the natural thing to do when you understand who God is. Now, I almost didn't put this passage in here because I believe this is the scariest passage of scripture I've ever read. And I mean it. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 22, this is God speaking to Israel. And God is what you would say fed up at this moment. And so he's going to describe his wrath and anger to the nation of Israel. And again, in an effort to get them to turn, to turn back, to turn around, to stop chasing after idols, to stop being so fickle and lukewarm with, with the God of Israel, he's going to use sort of a scare tactic. And he's going to sort of reveal his own wrath for them to understand where they're headed if they don't turn around. And interestingly enough, this is the same strategy God gave me when I was 25 years old. When I was 25 years old, I was lukewarm, I was rebellious, I was walking away from God, and I was glad to do so. And then God used the same strategy to me in life. He let me look into a mirror, he held me over the ledge for a little while and said, Todd, if you continue to go this way, this is where you will find yourself. This is what he's doing. He's sending his prophet Ezekiel to tell the nation of Israel, this is where you're headed. Now, this is not God's desire for them, and you only need to know that by reading the entire lineage of Scripture. Because God has bent himself over backwards in order to love the nation of Israel. But in Ezekiel chapter 22, God is fed up with the nation. They are living as contrary to God as they possibly could be. So the writer, the prophet, has a task. He's going to reveal to them God's anger. So let's just read a few verses. Ezekiel 22, starting in verse 18. And this is Ezekiel the prophet speaking. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross. That word means rubbish or garbage. The house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver or the stuff that you would burn off of silver in order to make it silver. That's what the Israelites have become to God. They've become the dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. Now, maybe because we know the character of God, maybe what we're expecting him to do is to forgive them to heal them, possibly to give them a lesson and to teach them a little bit. But not exactly, because we keep reading. In verse 20 it says, As one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you, 
I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. Wow. That's scary, isn't it? That's a terrifying passage to read. That right there is no one's life passage. I'm almost certain. No one has put that up on their house in a plaque, in a little picture frame. And if you do, that's probably a weird person. Um, even though it's the scripture. Now, that, that's a terrifying scripture. Now, but that's very serious, isn't it? That is God telling the Israelites exactly how it is. I am holy. I am righteous. I am just. And you are doing everything contrary to how I've taught you. And if you continue this way, I will have no option but to be just and to stand for righteousness and to show you my holiness and righteous indignation. Thankfully, though, you know the character of the Lord. You know his desire for the Israelites is not their destruction, is it? His desire is their salvation. His desire is their eternal life. But he's also God. He's also holy. He's also righteous. And he also must tell us the truth. And what I believe he's doing with the Israelites is letting them see where they're headed in such a blunt fashion so they come to their senses and say, God, we need you. God, we're sorry. God, we've been rebellious. God, we, we confess our sins. We own up to our sins. And we turn around this very day. There's other examples of this in Scripture as well. If you remember Mount Sinai, when the Israelites could not even go near the mountain because God was descending upon the mountain in a very profound way. In Exodus 19, it says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud of the mountain, and the sound of trumpet was very loud, so all the people who were in the camp trembled. If you bump ahead and fast forward to Hebrews 12, it says, Our God is a consuming fire. That is not a passage we talk a lot about. God is love, God is holy, God is forgiving, God is merciful, God is gracious. But he's also consuming fire, is he not? God is holy and he does not stand for what is sinful and what is wicked. And he wants us to know that so that we understand we must change our relationship to sin and to evil and to fear. And notice what Jesus says again in verse 5 of Luke 12. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus ever use that strategy with his children? Why not just tell us how much he loves us over and over and over again? Well, if you've ever been a parent, you get it, don't you? You understand that strategy only goes so far. Sometimes you have to tell your children the truth, the blunt truth, the honest truth. Well, in Revelation, we find Jesus saying something like this. If anyone's name, this is prophetic, looking into the future and the end times. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, that's not a wonderful passage to read. It's not a life passage. But it's something we need to understand. Why? So that we don't find ourselves in that category of person. The reason warnings are sent are so that we turn away from the harm. That's why there are warnings on the news station about tornadoes and storms coming. This storm is real. This storm is severe. Take cover. Take shelter. It's going to be serious. When the Lord writes these things in his scripture, he's loving us. He is loving us because he doesn't want us to find ourselves there. 
Job understood this in a very profound way. If you've ever read the book of Job, Job was a righteous man, but Job also had some things to learn about God. And in Job chapter 37, God is sharing with Job some of the things Job doesn't understand about God. As in that God is the creator of everything. God is the sustainer of everything. God is before time. God is above space. God is higher and greater and broader and deeper than anything Job could ever imagine. And Job, even Job had to change his perspective on the fact that I shouldn't trifle with God. God's not one to be trifled with. He is holy, he is just, he is merciful, and I'm a sinful person. And I need God's mercy, and I need to do what God says. So in Scripture, this is what helps us make sense of some passages that say things like this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Because evil is destructive. Evil will harm us. Evil will keep us from God. And God does not want that. Well, maybe that's an Old Testament thing. Maybe, maybe again, God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. Jesus arrives, he's the nice version of God, and we never hear things like fear again, right? That's typically sometimes what people think about the scriptures, is that in the Old Testament, God was a truth teller. He was scary. In the New Testament, Jesus is meek and gentle and humble and never talks about these things ever again. Well, that's not true. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, who walked with Jesus his entire time on the earth, or his entire ministry on the earth, says, if you call on him as father, meaning God the Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile, or throughout the time on earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Notice it. What were we redeemed with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you notice what he's saying? Don't trifle with the blood of Jesus. Don't disregard the blood of Jesus. Don't act as if the blood of Jesus is not valuable, is not precious, is not holy. Do not misuse the blood of Jesus. In an effort for you to do that, you should have a level of fear that you conduct yourselves with while you're on this journey through this earth so that you never profane the precious blood of Jesus. That's what Peter is saying here to the church so that we understand what we need to understand. In Philippians, Paul takes the same kind of strategy and says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, notice it, work out your salvation with fear. And in case we think fear is reverence and respect only, which it can mean that, Paul says fear and trembling. Can you imagine that God would ever want us to tremble? Ever want us to be fearful? Ever want us to have an idea that God could one day destroy us? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How do we understand this? Because this is challenging even for a pastor to wrap my head around this concept when God has told me I am love, I love you, I'm merciful, I will forgive you, and I love you forevermore. We're going to come back to this and answer this question at the end, but I found a couple quotes speaking about the fear of God from two trusted men that I love. Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, the fear of God reigning in the heart is the beauty of the soul. My wife actually did paint that for me, and that's up in her house. 
Because I love that quote. The fear of God reigning in the heart is the beauty of the soul. And I believe that's true. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases away all other fears before it. And I believe that's true as well. When you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Now, again, we're still a little uneasy, aren't we? We just got one fear replaced with a bigger fear, and it's a fear we're not really comfortable with. Is that really the kind of God that we want? Let's keep going because the scripture keeps going. Let's now talk about no fear. We've talked about the wrong fear. We've talked about the right fear. Now we need to talk about no fear because the passage continues. Now maybe you guys remember this. There was a clothing, a clothing line several years ago called No Fear. And it was all about these thrill seekers who wore these things who go skydiving and swim with sharks, which is probably not a very good idea. Um, but if we tell ourselves to not fear, if we suppress fear enough, we can do anything. And again, I don't think that's a right strategy. Because I think, I think fear is, can sometimes be a friend to us if we keep it in check, if we have the right kind of fear. Here's our question today before we close, is what would you do if you weren't afraid? Truly, what would you do if you had no fear? No fear at all, what would you do in this life? Would you go skydiving more? Would you swim with sharks? Would you go bungee jumping? Jump out of a plane? Would you do something crazy? Well, I think that question is going to be important for us as Christ followers. Because you see evidences of this all the way through Scripture. People that weren't afraid. People that should have been afraid. Because the giant was much bigger than them. A better warrior than them. A better fighter than them. They should have been afraid. But they weren't. And the reason for that is because they had someone on their team. You come to me, David said, with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I'm not afraid of you, Goliath, because God's on my team, and God comes with me this very hour, and you not only have to fight me, you have to fight him. So I'm not afraid. I'm going to do his will. I'm going to stand up for his glory, stand up for his name, and you are going to go down, Goliath. And Goliath did go down. Jesus, in our passage, says it this way. He says, are not five sparrows... And this is, again, the same passage. This is right after he told us, fear God, because he's the one who can cast your soul into hell. This is the next verse. I mean, talk about a quick change. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, I guess I had to do a little bit of background and digging about what that meant. Back in the day, sparrows, you could, you could actually buy sparrows and use them as a meal. Uh, you could get five of them. I guess there, was, there were a lot of poor people and who couldn't get, a, couldn't get a proper meal. And so you could buy a lot of sparrows, a handful of sparrows for two pennies. And that could be your dinner that night. How does that sound, everybody? Just came off Thanksgiving. How about next year we have some sparrow? Back in the day, they did, though. They ate sparrows. That, that, that was, that was an, a meal that for someone who didn't have a lot of money, that's something they could get. So you could get five of them for two pennies. You could feed your belly. You could have a meal. Sparrows were not worth much. Even today, I don't think they're worth a lot. I decided to look up how many sparrows they believe are in the world. It's somewhere between 1 billion and possibly more than there are people in the world. There's a lot of sparrows, in other words. I never think about the sparrows. Does anyone think about sparrows? The only time I think about sparrows is when I read this verse. Or if I see one and I have to identify it for my child. Otherwise, I don't think about sparrows. But you know who does think about sparrows? Our Heavenly Father thinks about all the sparrows. All of them. The billions of sparrows in this world our Lord thinks about. He says in verse 7, why even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And then notice this, fear not. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. Uh, it's estimated that the human head, the normal human head, <laughs> you know what you're thinking. It's like that classic passage no bald pastor wants to bring up. But the average human head, guess how many hairs the average human head has? Approximately 100,000 hairs on the average human head. Now, that's a lot of hairs. According to our passage, Jesus numbers them all. He knows them all. Every single hair on your head. Now, again, for the normal person, that's really cool. But <laughs> for those of us who have about 28 left, <laughs> he still knows them. Right, Ray? Ray? Ray's back there. He understands. Thank you. So, you know, that would even apply to my chin. Thank you. Okay, we'll take it. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? That God knows every single hair on our head, and he cares about us more than he cares about the sparrows. In the Matthew passage, the parallel passage, it says, not one sparrow falls to the earth apart from the will of the Father. Do you know that? Not one sparrow can die unless God okays it. Not one hair could fall off her head, and it must be God's will that I don't have hair, because uh, that's according to his will, can fall off your head without God's decree. What is he telling us? I love you. I think about you. He's a father, isn't he? He's our father, and he loves us. And I know that he loves us, because he's told me, because I've seen his love, and because I have eight children who I love deeply. And I think about my children all the time. All the time. When I'm away from them, when I'm with them, I think about my children. I know their names. I know their middle names. I know their birthdays. I know what they're scared of. I know what makes them happy. I know their senses of humor. I know their delights. I know their hates. I know a lot about my children because I think about them. I pray for them and I love them tenderly. Every single one of my children is precious to me. But I don't know how many hairs are on their head. I don't know them to that level. I'm not their creator. Someone loves my children more than I do, and he loves them way more than I do. He loves them more than many sparrows. He's numbered every hair on their head, and that's a beautiful thing to know. And, and I told you we were going to circle back to this. Even though I love my children, I believe you have seen my love for my children. There are times that my children have to be scared, that I have to say, take the similar strategy that the Lord has taken with us today and use it with my children. And why do I do that? Because I want them alive. If I see my child running after a ball into the street, which I've told them not to do, I might scare them with my voice, with some discipline. Because my effort is to keep my child from not being hit by a car and dying. Therefore, there is a healthy fear that my children have of me and their mother that keeps them in check, which keeps them safe, which keeps them alive and keeps them healthy. Every good father and mother understands that. And every good father and mother must balance that, don't we? Between love and fear. And our God does this perfectly. Perfectly. He knows the exact amount of love and the exact amount of fear that is proper for us to be healthy and to walk on the straight and narrow following Jesus. And I'm thankful for that love. And I'm thankful for that fear. Look at it again. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. I mean, he thinks about the sparrows, things we never think about. They have no value in our culture. If hundreds and millions of them die today, 
Would we care? Would we know? God would care and God would know. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And notice this phrase, fear not. This is such an interesting passage. He starts with saying wrong fear. Then he says right fear. And then he says, fear not, child. Why, Jesus? Why is he telling us this? Why is we going flip, flipping from one to the other so quickly? Well, this is why I believe the gospel helps us understand why God is doing what he's doing. Because when we were sinners, which we all start as sinners, that's when Christ died for us, isn't it? According to Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When things were the worst they could possibly be for our souls, when we were rebellious and hostile against God, evil, selfish, evil-loving, righteous, hating, that is when Jesus died for us so that we could find life. Do you notice that? He didn't have to. In our estimation, we didn't, we didn't deserve that. But he did it anyways because he loves us. Or I love what it says in Romans 5.10. For if while we were God's enemies, because that's when he died for us, while we were his enemies, not after we cleaned ourselves up, God goes, yeah, I'll love you now. He loved us while we were his enemies. Notice that we were reconciled to him. The word reconciled means brought back together. Brought back together. We're not saved from God. Notice that we're saved to God. The word reconciled means brought back with God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, now that we are with God, shall we be saved through his life? Is there anything our God wouldn't do for us? Anything. If it meant our love, if it meant our safety, if it meant our health, would God withhold anything from us now that we have been reconciled? When we were enemies, that's when Jesus died for us. That's a powerful verse to, to grab a hold of. And I think that's what God is doing for us today. He's shielding us from the scary on earth and the scary in eternity. He doesn't want us to find any harm, any fear, anywhere. God does not want us practically afraid, does he? He wants us doctrinally properly afraid, but he doesn't want us trembling all the time. He doesn't want us walking on eggshells. He doesn't want us trembling before him at all periods of our life. He just wants us to understand what is wrong fear, what is right fear, and that we should have no fear if we really know him. Proverbs 18 says it this way, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower, the righteous run to it and are safe. Now a God full of that much wrath and justice and righteous indignation, I mean, that's a God you wouldn't want to be near, right? I mean, what if he flies off the handle? I mean, what if, what if God does things with us similar to sometimes our, we do with our, with our kids having a bad day? I mean, that would be bad. God could crush us, but will God ever do that? No. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to that tower and are safe. And this is the picture of when my children run to my arms after I get home from work. I have shown them discipline. I have shown them fear at times. But they've also learned one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt. Daddy is safe. And that when I run to my daddy's arms, I am protected. That is the message today of our lesson. Is that the one that we should be scared of is the very one who loves us deeply. 
Now we're going to read a passage before we close, and I have to go fast through this because our time is going beyond what it should already. But this is the passage that I want to read from Daniel. Maybe you guys are familiar with this passage. It's the passage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I don't have time to teach this. I want to read the narrative and pause a couple times along the way. And I just want you to understand the protective nature of our God. Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil, selfish, narcissistic king. It said he made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar made an idol of himself, a large golden statue that everyone could admire and worship and bow down to. How selfish and narcissistic was King Nebuchadnezzar? But he did it because he's king. And he could do it. And he commanded that every single person give homage and adoration to the statue. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. What would you do? Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I mean, obviously, that's what you should do, right? If someone threatens you with a fiery furnace, if you don't bow down. Therefore, at that time, certain... Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, Pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Three guys out of the entire province of Babylon don't bow down to the statue because they already have a God. And he's holy. And he's righteous. And he's jealous. And he's good. And he's loving. And he's merciful. And he is the one true God. So although they're threatened with a fiery furnace, they're not afraid. Or are they? Are they afraid of somebody else? They don't bow down to the statue. Then Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and in furious rage commands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. 
But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Wow. The confidence, the courage to stand there in the face of such opposition and fear and to say we worship the one true God. But if not, even if he doesn't rescue us, even if he doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Does it remind you of something? They were God-fearing. Only God-fearing. They feared God and no one else. Do you see what God-fearing can do for a person? It can make them courageous, confident, and fearless in the face of of evil. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not bluffing. He was not bluffing that day. He was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed. Against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than was usually heated. I mean, this guy is evil. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The worst Nebuchadnezzar can do to them is take their body. Expedite, speed up the process for them to be with their Father in heaven. That's the worst he can do. And they know that. And they're confident that even if the worst happens that day, nothing truly harmful has ever actually taken place. So they bound these men. These men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. See, King Nebuchadnezzar is not bluffing here. He literally did it. He picked them up and threw them into the furnace. And that's where the chapter should end. They burned up and were, and were dead. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, <laughs> this is an interesting part to our story, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a big furnace. A huge fire, it's so hot, so intense, the people that throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire are immediately consumed. And the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. In verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, we did. There should be three men in there, bound, in the furnace. Verse 25, it says, He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. I mean, how cool, how powerful is this passage? Nebuchadnezzar can see this. He sees the fourth man. He sees they're not bound anymore. They're walking and they're not hurt. They're not afraid. Because the Lord is with them. Just like he said he would be. He's in the fire with them. You don't need to be afraid of those who decide, who decide and want and desire to destroy your body because I am with you. I love you. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Wow. I mean, God's just showing off right there. No smell of smoke even? Nothing is harmed on their bodies. It's as if they were never in the fire at all. Jesus reminds us today, you're worth more than many sparrows. If I care for the sparrows, and I do care for the sparrows, you, child of God, are made in my image. And when you were sinners, I sent Jesus to die for you. I love you deeply. The point of this lesson today is not fear. It's protection. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god was able to rescue in this way. Even Nebuchadnezzar could not deny the truth. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is real and powerful and loving and merciful. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What's the point of our lesson today? Because the point is not fear. I hope you can see that by reading the, the message of Jesus Christ Number one, I believe the application as we take home today is if we don't fear God, then we have everything to fear because we're alone. If we don't have Jesus in our corner, if we don't have God on our team, we are alone today with all the scary things coming against us. We have no one to fight with us or for us. We're alone. And not only are we alone, but we have to stand before God on judgment day and pay for every sin we've ever committed. That is the truly scary place to be if we don't fear God. Number two, if we do fear God, then we have nothing else to fear because God is with us. Do you believe that? That everywhere you go, everything he commands you to do, he goes with you. He goes before you. He stands next to you and says, I am here. You will not be harmed. I love you. Number three, the only one worthy of us fearing is the very one who died for us. Isn't that such a powerful thing to know? The one that we should be scared of the most. And we should fear God. We should always be God-fearing. We should never trifle with God. But is the point to tremble practically before God and always be scared of God? No. The goal is to do what God has called us to do with courage and with confidence. To do the will of him who died for us. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They stood against the edict of the king and said, we will only do what the God of Israel has told us. We believe in him, we love him, he is our God, and he will protect us. And before we close today, I have to ask you this question, because this question was posed to me in my mid-20s. Are you in the strong tower today? If and when the scary comes to you, and it will, are you safe? Are you secure? Is God with you? Is the name of Jesus your king? 
because Jesus loves us deeply. I've hoped that we've proven that today. I hope that you know that already in your life, that you've seen his mercy, you've seen his love, you've seen his protection. But if not, if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, you aren't in the strong tower today. It can change this very hour simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Setting your eyes on the protector and saying, I need you and I trust in you and I will run to you today and I will be safe. I hope that every single one of us, when we leave this place today, when we face the scary things that we will face, that surround us at every hour of the day, we will stand in confidence and courage and go forward in the name of God because God, the same God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stands with us this very hour. He is our protector. Would you bow and pray? Father, I thank you for this lesson. Um, we've simply touched the surface today, Father, we've just grazed the tip of the iceberg because your protective nature, Father, is all over the scripture. You love us. You don't want to see any harm come to us on this side or the other side, Father. And so you're willing to do what you have to do to let us know that, to let us know that you love us and let us know that we must follow you. We must follow our Lord Jesus. It is the only safe place, Father. Remind us of that today. Let us once again, focus our attention upon what you say, what you command us to do, and go forward in obedience because we love you, we fear you, and we know that you love us with your protective fatherly love. Father, chase away all the scary things of this life and let us do your will with courage and confidence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.